I'm Raven Roll, and this is a Phoenix in Phoenix. After marrying and having their daughter Victoria, Elaine and Johnny Salas had forever to look forward to. The past few years of Elaine's life had been traumatizing, to say the least. It was finally time to relax and be the mom and wife she always wanted to be. But it wasn't long before things turned sour. Elaine's family wasn't ready to move on yet. While she was adjusting to her new life, they were still right there. And she said that she would be coming back from working at the Dragon Chinese restaurant at two in the morning, and we would be walking in the snow. And she would catch my grandfather going by slowly, watching her. So they were like stalking you guys. I think they were more um, worried about her and still cared for her, but it was like, when you're Catholic, it's our way or the highway. So uh -huh. she chose the highway, but they wanted to see if she was okay. Okay. So if she, I remember her telling me when I was like eight, or not eight, younger than that, that she wrote them a really long letter. She always tried to um, reunite with her family. She always loved them to the day she died. She was never bitter. She always understood. Um, she truly loved them. What they weren't thinking about was the pain and suffering they put their daughter through. Despite Elaine's great efforts to move forward, she was still recovering from being wrongfully forced into a mental institution. Throughout our conversation, Victoria constantly reminded me of how strong and resilient her mother was, and I believe it but the mental hospital was one topic Elaine just didn't like talking about. I really wanted to fully grasp the severity of this trauma, so I did a quick search into mental institutions in the 1960s and 70s. The 1960s were the beginning of the transition from inhumane to humane treatment in mental institutions, so there was still a lot of despicable behavior happening. The British Psychological Society published an article in May of 2012 which described the practices in hospitals in the 60s and 70s and included several journal entries from a man named David, not to be confused with Elaine's first husband, who was suffering from schizophrenia. On July 24, 1966, he wrote, I feel oppressed, depressed, stupid, and inferior, which I am. He recounted his experience with two nurses. Crowley attacked me after Murphy was her usual abusive, insulting self, full of self-importance. My hair was pulled very hard. Crowley put both his hands around my throat and squeezed as hard as he could. And lastly, he had a lot of entries talking about the excessive use of sedative drugs. Quote, injection I had last night, unnecessary of course, very painful still, end quote. This is how a person with a legitimate mental illness was treated. Elaine wasn't mentally ill. Imagine having to explain that to someone who thinks you're crazy. So no, we don't know what happened to Elaine in that hospital, but it couldn't have been good. Next thing you know, her family got a piece of what they wanted. There would be no more Elaine and Johnny.
my dad was always in love with my mom to the day he died. He never wanted my mother to divorce him. But my mother gave him an ultimatum that if he didn't stop gambling, that she would leave him. And my mother did not play. My father had a wonderful factory job in the steel mills. He had migrated up from Mississippi to Chicago and from Chicago to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And they actually had a lot of industrial jobs in the steel mills and in the um, Quaker Oats. Also, the, the pig dissection for Hormel and all those things. And so my dad got a really great job in the steel mill, made really good money when my mom met him, but then he deteared and started gambling. And my mom gave him an ultimatum, if you don't stop gambling, I'll leave you. He didn't. Therefore, my mom uh, divorced him. And on the anniversary, well, on the, my mom divorced him. And on the day the divorce was final, my dad got the papers and was so mad that he went and took me from the babysitters. He drove me immediately to Waterloo. I remember him, actually, I know this sounds crazy, but he had a white Cadillac with red interior, with white and red interior. And we drove down to my Aunt Doris's. I would have been like two, I think. And she was my auntie who would have been his mom's sister. And her name was Aunt Doris and she had a husband named Lefty. My aunt and uncle were two of the best human beings on my dad's side that I'd ever met kind, generous family, married their whole lives till death. So um, he knew I would be in good hands. So instead of staying there with me, my father, um, you talk about Rolling Stone, epitome, look in the dictionary. There's my dad's picture, Red Salas, Rolling Stone. So he drops me off at my auntie's and tells them all that my white mother disowned me and she went back to her white family and therefore I was an orphan and needed a home got back in his Cadillac and went up to Minneapolis and started a whole new phase um, that was bad and went down a wrong road. In the meantime, my Aunt Doris, of course, has no reason to think my dad would lie, even though he fibbed a lot. And my dad had a stutter that made everyone laugh. It was comical because he used that impairment actually to socially gain acceptance. Um, by, you know, being so jolly and fun. That's how my dad always won people over. But, um, so my dad told them that my mom went back to her white family and that I needed a home. So my aunt had no reason to not believe him, even though later she realized that he lied a lot. She would tell me my dad fibbed all the time. Elaine spent three long, agonizing months searching for Victoria. During those three months, she was taken to another family member's house who I will not be naming. This family member struggled with infertility and therefore took Victoria as their own. It wasn't a pleasant time for little Victoria, though. She was practically being held hostage in the basement, scared and alone. Elaine eventually connected all the dots and realized Victoria was in Waterloo. My mom had FBI raids and then they, when they really knew I was there, they just broke the door down. But there were weeks they would come and I remember them coming to the door and I couldn't get out. So I would just claw and then they would go away. 
it wasn't until like the third time they came back that they came and then my mom and I got to go back with my mom. Once the two were reunited, they continued life in Cedar Rapids for about 15 more years. During that time, Elaine got to live out some of her dreams. And she's by herself. So she decides, hey, I gotta do something, I gotta reinvent myself, here we go. This is the third time. So she decides to open up her own business, become self-employed. She starts a massage business. mother and I are living in a small apartment. My mom's working so hard moving up. She does so well that she's able to start her own business and open and lease a, a space. When Victoria was 17, she and her mom moved up to Phoenix, Arizona. Elaine was able to start a second massage business over there that was also widely successful. being robbed so much that my mom eventually closed the one in Iowa and just kept the one here. All is good, right? No. Just like last time, right when things seem to be setting into place, Elaine's world gets turned upside down. Phoenix, 1985. Victoria, her sister Teresa, and her son Nick plan to meet up with Elaine at the Oscar Taylor's restaurant inside of the Biltmore Mall for lunch. My mama went down at six and she was shopping in Macy's. And this guy would follow you around the store, case you from your car, then follow you to your car. And his MO was that he would hold a knife to your throat, make you scoot over in the car, take you to a different location, rape and sodomize you, take you to the bank, take all your money out, and then leave you in the desert in your car. Well, uh, the first victim was 15 and he did her 30 minutes before he tried to get my mom. He raped her at night point in the parking lot of the Biltmore, which is a very high-end, bougie um, shopping mall here in Phoenix. Was it caught, goes back, sees my mom leave her brand new Seville Cadillac and goes into the mall. He follows her all around the mall in the store, follows her to her car. As she gets close to her door, he says, ma'am, um, you need to come back here and look, you got a bubble in your tire. My mom is very street smart, the most street smart white woman I've ever met in my life. She must have been black in a, in a previous reincarnation, I'm telling you. She said, sir, I got new Vogue's on my DeVille. Ain't no bubble in my tire. Now that's street talk for I got some new, some Vogue's were these special tires that had white walls that were pinned all the way around. 
usually only brothers had those and they were like a big time upgrade they cost a lot of money and they didn't get bubbles okay so my mom was like no sir you're wrong and my mom got a vibe right away so he couldn't get her to come back to attack her so as she starts to get in her car to close the door he jumps on top of her and tries to put the, the knife to her neck and she fights it she will not scoot over she knows it's life or death and she's only two of 15 victims that fought back and because she fought back she didn't get raped. He kept stabbing her, stabbing her, stabbing her in the throat. Blood was spurting out. She was screaming. Blood was getting on him. She got up and stood because he ran. She got up and started to walk and every heartbeat, blood was spurting out and it hit these people's window and they rolled it up and drove away. Next time on A Phoenix in Phoenix, will Elaine survive? That's it for today. Join me on September 27th for part three of A Phoenix in Phoenix.